When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it felt right. I felt right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are about initiations and proving yourself. Whether it's in your lab, at a new job, a new school, there always seems to be this period where you gotta like try out and prove you belong. Now, I didn't rush a sorority or have any high school hazing. I live in Canada. We don't really do that here. But I did have to go through a certain kind of initiation to become a lifeguard. It involved a lot of physical endurance, like, you know, treading water with a brick for what felt like an eternity and swimming 20 laps of the pool in only 11 minutes. You have to get like this weighted dummy off the bottom of the dive tank and do several laps in all of your clothing. All this just so you can blow a whistle and tell kids to stop running on the pool deck. Hmm. Anyway, our first story is from Colleen McDermott. It was recorded at the Public Media Commons in St. Louis in February 2023. The theme that night was variables. I know I'm not the only one who made an impulsive decision in the year 2020. COVID and quarantine had everyone going stir crazy, right? For most people though, that meant they were cutting their own bangs, baking 10 pounds of banana bread all at once, I decided to become a lumberjack. <laughs> I was 18 years old in my first semester of college. And at that point, the supposed best four years of my life were not off to a pleasant start. Almost all of my classes were on Zoom. I was lonely. And most of all, I was sick of my dorm room, sick of sitting in there, staring at those same four off-white walls. So I dreamed of the outdoors. In my head, I was somewhere in the forest and mountains, you know, on an adventure somewhere. By the time February rolled around, I had been hired by Philmont Scout Ranch to spend three months working as a forestry conservationist. So if you don't know, Philmont is basically like a Boy Scout pilgrimage site. Every summer, thousands of scouts and their adult supervisors will travel to northern New Mexico for these hiking expeditions across the backcountry. And one day of that track has to include a three-hour conservation project, which is what I would be overseeing. And the position description made it out to be hard work. You know, this was 10-hour work days for 10 days at a time with only three days off, but I was stoked anyway. The position description also said stuff like, this is serious wildfire prevention business, and you will be required to operate a chainsaw. And I was like... Okay, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> I never touched a chainsaw in my life. When people asked me why I was pursuing forestry that summer, my response was, 
well, I like forests. <laughs> I was so far out of my element, yet so excited by the prospect of this adventure to even care. So I started exercising more. I broke in my new steel toe, full grain leather work boots. Right? I thought I had everything under control. And then summer arrived, and I arrived at Philmont. And my reality slapped me in the face that day. Suddenly, everything was real. And my dad had flown across the country with me to drop me off. And I was so nervous that morning, I wouldn't even speak to him. I hardly even said goodbye. I walked around those beige buildings and tents that made a base camp, collected my uniform and name tag with trembling hands. And along with this realization that I was way in over my head, I realized something else with every new person I met. Nobody looked like me. I am asexual and genderqueer, assigned female at birth. And at the time, I very much presented as a woman with long curly red hair. I tied back with ribbons and bows. And up until this point, I really hadn't given any thought as to the role my identity could play in this new job. However, I quickly realized the kinds of people who know what words like asexual and genderqueer mean, and the kinds of people who operate chainsaws on a daily basis. <laughs> Generally, they don't intersect. <laughs> like in this Venn diagram, the circles are now even touching. My fellow conservationists, they could pass as real lumberjacks. I'm talking Paul Bunyan, brawny paper towel guy, beard and flannel style loggers. Like they looked apart. And watching them interact with each other that first day, I found myself looking in at this tough guy, cis-heteronormative culture that just felt comple completely and totally alien to me. And for the first time, I found myself asking this question that I definitely should have asked back in February. Can I even lift a chainsaw? <laughs> like, how heavy are these things? Can I hold it for an extended period of time? I get my answer quickly enough, uh, not easily. The job started out with training in base camp, and our first task was supposed to be simple. Just turn on your chainsaw and cut a log in half. If I haven't felt like an outsider before, I certainly felt like one when I couldn't even pull the cord hard enough to start the saw. Everyone else is standing there holding their revving saws, and they're going, yank it harder, yank it harder. <laughs> Days later, we would realize I had been given a broken chainsaw. <laughs> the Hulk could have pulled that cord and it wouldn't have started. But that's a problem for another time. Right now, I'm being judged by God's gifts to masculinity, okay? <laughs> My muscles feel like jelly from pulling this cord for 15 minutes straight. And even when one of them hands me their saw to practice cutting this log with, my arms are straining under the weight. So this training situation is not going fantastic. Fortunately, things went a little better for a while there. Um, we you know, learned wilderness first aid, how to operate a radio. We took a day hike into the backcountry where a New Mexico state forester led us around, showed us how to identify all the different native trees, white fir and Engelman spruce, Rocky Mountain juniper, ponderosa pine. But before long, it was time for all cons a seven-day trek into the backcountry where the real training happened. So the whole conservation department, about 120 of us, 
packed these massive backpacks full of gear and headed deep into the mountains. And there we learned how to fell trees. So a big part of wildfire prevention is fuel thinning. This idea that if we're able to manually remove excess uh, brush from the forest, then the next fire that goes through will have less kindling to work with. It won't be as severe. Now, in the family tree of STEM, environmental science has always sort of felt to me like the weird, dirty cousin, but it's a science all the same. And learning these theoretical principles that underlie the field of fire ecology, I felt for a moment like I was stepping back into my comfort zone. This was logical, something made sense. Even the act of felling a tree had this formulaic five-step process I memorized with ease. The thing is, as much as scientists may think we have a plan mapped out, there are always gonna be variables we fail to account for. And for me, it was my identity. My first attempt at felling a tree went, okay, it wasn't great, but I showed promise. My second attempt was basically a Sawyer's worst nightmare. And as many times as I've told the story, I'll never be able to do the moment justice. I remember we had picked out this tree. I went over the five-step felling plan with my saw instructor. Their smile told me I had nailed it. And as they stepped away from the tree, I stepped toward it, saw in hand. I began making all the necessary cuts. My earplugs were in, the chainsaw was roaring. I was in the zone. And then above all that noise, I heard a scream this high-pitched, terrified scream. My instincts took over. I just yanked the saw free from the bark and I took a single step to the right. And in doing so, I saved my life. Wind basically blew my hair back as this massive pine landed right where I had been standing. 180 degrees opposite the direction it was supposed to go. And I remember just staying there frozen in shock for a few moments. My saw instructor tried consoling me. You know, they told me it wasn't my fault. It was this freak accident that they'd never before seen a tree just careen backwards like that, even when all of my cuts and calculations were correct. But I was hardly listening. I could feel all the other conservationist eyes on me. And as much as I loved and understood the science of forestry, at the end of the day, I was a tiny, queer, 18-year-old female. And I thought... I don't belong here. This job wasn't made for people like me. And with that, I promptly burst into tears. And my saw instructor was very nice. They led me to this secluded rock in the woods, told me to just take all the time I needed to console myself. And for a while, as I sat there, I honest to God tried coming up with a lie I could use to get me sent home. (laughs) Like I was at my limit, I was done. But then I thought about my freshman year and the loneliness of my dorm room. I thought of all I had done in one short week, stuff I could have never imagined beforehand. I thought, I looked around me, I saw the forest and the mountains, I smelled pine and sawdust in the air, and I realized what an incredible place it was I was in. From an aesthetic perspective, sure, but from an ecological perspective as well. During that day hike we had taken with the New Mexico State Forester, learning the different native trees, I remember most fascinating to me was the ponderosa pine. The ponderosa is specially adapted to withstand frequent low to mid-intensity fires. It has this super thick flaky bark 
and it does a thing called self-pruning. Basically, as a ponderosa matures, it drops its lower limbs, its lower branches, so a fire can't use them to climb up into the canopy. Granted, that doesn't always work. We passed through an area where there had been a recent prescribed burn and saw these ponderosas that looked almost entirely scorched. But the forester told us not to worry. If just 10% of the tree was green up at the top, it had a 90% chance of survival. So when a fire moves through a forest, it doesn't matter which trees look the biggest or the strongest. What matters is resilience, something that can't always be seen on the outside. So I got up off my rock and I tried again. And my third attempt at felling a tree was near perfect. With my confidence restored, all the techniques I learned just fell into place. So I received my chainsaw certification at the end of that week. I was selected to spend my summer working at a gorgeous remote backcountry camp just north of Philmont in Carson National Forest. I would be living and working there with five people that, like me, weren't quite as tall as the others, weren't quite as straight as the others, <laughs> but just as capable. By the end of that summer, I alone had felled over 300 trees wow. to protect that forest from devastation. Granted, <laughs> granted, the road was not always easy, definitely not. We were working with thousands of scouts and their adult advisors every day. And while most were lovely, some stick out like sore thumbs in my memory. There was the guy who tried to mansplain the tree felling process to me. The teenagers that jeered at us for including pronouns in our introductions. My favorite, the man who saw all of our chainsaws lined up on the ground and looked at me and said, I'm assuming only your male peers get to use those. Yeah, seriously. But there were other moments that made it all worth it. It was the scouts that would come to us after a session, casting shy looks back at their crews and thank us for normalizing sharing pronouns. It was the mother who called me an inspiration to her daughter, who showed her that people like us could make it out there. It was the young trans woman who, after seeing the rainbow pride stickers on our name tags, smiled and in a low voice told us her true identity. And for me, that was the most gratifying part of the summer, not just preventing a wildfire, but being able to show some kids like me that we do belong in the outdoors with heavy machinery in hand. As queer people, as females, the world is always going to try to convince us otherwise. But we're resilient. And these days, I take my lessons from a ponderosa pine. Develop thick skin, get rid of unnecessary baggage, and when you are burnt out at your wit's end, learn to bounce back. Thank you. That was Colleen McDermott. Colleen McDermott is a current junior at Washington University in St. Louis, studying environmental analysis and writing. Colleen loves both conservation and communications. Working on a forestry crew in New Mexico sparked an interest in trees and fire ecology. Currently, they serve as a campus writing tutor, student coordinator for the Tyson Conservation Corps, and communications associate for the WashU's Tyson Research Center. They have presented at the 2022 Missouri and Kansas Environmental Education Conference, and their writing has been published in Remake and the Winnow Magazine. 
Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We have shows coming up in Chicago and L.A. next month on June 8th. Visit storyclutter.org tickets to grab your ticket today. You can also visit storyclutter.org shows to find out more about how to bring a Story Clutter show to your community. And if you're based in Seattle, we want to hear from you. We're teaming up with The Wild Podcast and KUOW Radio for a special Wild Stories storytelling show, Friday, October 27th, 2023, live in Seattle. We're looking for true stories about your personal experience with science, nature, and everything wild to be included in the show. The show theme is wild, which can be interpreted in any way you like. Anything from how you first fell in love with nature or biology and how it piqued your curiosity to experiment and explore, to how an experience in the wild has affected your personal or working life or something completely different. Really, we're looking for a story with a strong story arc or a change that takes place in the storyteller from beginning to end. If you're interested in sharing a story, please submit your pitch either at storyclutter.org submissions or email us at stories at storyclutter.org by July 27th and include a short one to two paragraph summary of your story and the wild in the subject line. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclutter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, if you're not already following us on social media, follow us at StoryClutter. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the StoryClutter at storyclutter.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestoryclutter. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Pete McCorvey. His story was recorded at the Jewel Box Theater in Seattle, Washington in November 2022. The theme that night was surprise. So it's a fall day in 2014. I am currently on my first deployment in the United States Navy. It's a hot, humid day, and we're sailing through the Arabian Gulf. Now, this day had terrified me. I was on the flight deck, and I was terrified. Not because we're off the Iranian coast, which is loaded with a bunch of small patrol crafts laden with explosives. Not because they had missiles that was on the shore aimed that could take out a ship just like that. I was nervous because I was getting OC sprayed that day. <laughs> for anybody who does not know what OC spray is, that's the proper term, um, the proper name for it is pepper spray. I was getting pepper sprayed. Now, OC stands for Olerizin Capsicum. So the reason why I was getting OC sprayed because I had to satisfy that requirement for this thing I was taking called Security Reaction Forces Bravo or SRFB Bravo. Now, the reason I was taking that pissed me off because I joined the Navy to be a cryptologist. I did not join to be a fucking rental cop, which, <laughs> which I found out when I got to my ship was my second uh, duty. And on top of that, the training consists of one, getting OC sprayed, two, we had weapons com, we had to learn weapons uh, handling, and three, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, most police officers, they do like six months. We did it all in a freaking week. 
So I was already nervous, one, because I didn't want to get sprayed in the face, and two, I knew that these techniques they taught us in this week was not only get my ass kicked, but probably get me killed. <laughs> so to let you know just how hot OC spray is, I looked it up, because I'm never going to get hit with something in the face, and I don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> Come to find out, um, it was one million Scoville heat units or shoes, 1.25 million Scoville units, Scoville heat units. Now, a ghost pepper is 1 million Scoville heat units. So you're telling me I'm going to get sprayed with some shit I wouldn't even put on my food? <laughs> and that completely messed it up, me up. Now, I'm also pissed at this point while I'm sitting here shaking like a leaf in autumn wind on this flight deck in the Arabian Gulf because this was not told that I was going to have to do this a year and a half ago when I joined the Navy. Not by my recruiters, you know, they're car salesmen, so I know they're gonna tell a lie. I'm talking about my uncles and my cousins who joined. All they told me about was going to join the beaches of Hawaii, <laughs> getting drunk in Australia, and checking out the massage parlors in Thailand. <laughs> so here I am, I'm thinking I'm finna join the Navy, party hard, drink hard, and have sex with beautiful women from around the world. I was not told about OC spray. <laughs> Had I been told about that, probably wouldn't fucking join. <laughs> so I'm a nervous wreck about this because we had known about it for like weeks before it happened. So I remember one day I'm sitting at lunch. I'm with my two friends, my friend Jared, and I'm with my friend Ray. Jared, he, he, he flashes that signature, easy going smile, like, bro, don't worry about it. They're gonna spray in the face. It's going to be like bees flying around your face. You'll be fine. Ray, on the other hand, he was family man, pissed off that he had to miss his kid's birthday, so he was already heated that we deployed. He said, man, fuck what he talking about. He said, it's not going to be bees flying around your face. It's going to feel like bees stinging you right in your eye. I'm talking about right on the pupil. If you said your face is a dartboard and your eye and your, eye and your pupil is the, the bull's eye, and that's what they're aiming and so I'm getting these two conflicting things, but they came together with one consensus. They said, but we are looking forward to the day you get sprayed. I said, why? I said, why are you guys looking forward to the day I get sprayed? What's going on? He said, bro, everybody knows you like a damn walking cartoon character with your animations on your face. So I developed the, the, um, I developed the persona being the funny guy on the ship, but I also developed, like I said, I had very cartoonish animations on my face. Like my expression, people say you read your expression on your sleeve. No, I wore it right on my grill. <laughs> so if I'm pissed about something, you know. If I'm scared about something, you know. If I'm excited about something, you know. If I see a woman and I get turned on, you know. <laughs> so the fact that they said, you're looking forward to seeing my reaction, that let me know then this shit is probably not gonna be that good when I get sprayed. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm at ease and I tossed and turned with it. Now come to another thing to find out that they told us right before we got sprayed is that OC will, will crystallize in your face. That means once it crystallizes, once it gets wet again, it will do what they call reflash, like fire is getting back active again. And they told us when we got in the shower to lean forward. And I was like, lean forward? They said, well, you know it's gonna get wet and it's gonna drip and you don't want it dripping down to your, your private parts. That would not have been a good idea for every guy bunking with me to hit at like nine o'clock at night, hear me screaming. I'm not, I was not trying to be the walking embodiment of Jerry Lee Lewis's great balls of fire, if you get what I'm saying. So I tossed and turned all night. 
And hit finally, it was coming to the day. I woke up, 06 in the morning, they called away Reveille. Nine o'clock that day, I knew I'm getting sprayed. So these last few thoughts going through my mind, I'm thinking, is it not gonna be as bad as Jared said? Is it gonna hurt like hell, like Ray said? And then one last question went through my, my mind. God, if you please love me, let a, let a rainstorm come through and hit the Arabian Gulf, please. <laughs> Which we know is the Arabian Gulf, if you know weather and forecast, that's, that's not gonna happen. This is not a Walt Disney 90s movie. Miracles don't happen like that. So two guys went in front of me. They did, ran through it just fine. But these two guys was like average 6'3", 250 pounds. So that wasn't giving me no comp confidence. So then I go up to get sprayed, and the master at arm, that's the guy who's giving the training, who's gonna spray you, he asks a, that most asinine question I can ever understand. Are you ready? <laughs> Who the hell would be ready to get shot in the face with something that's gonna stink him? Y'all gotta understand, this thing is a, um, a lacrimator. It's designed to irritate your, your eyes and cause tears to fall. I don't know anybody who's gonna wake up and say, you know what, I wanna get shot in the face with something that's hotter than the ninth circuit of hell. <laughs> so I'm shaking, and then I, like, man, I must up a curse, say, yeah, I'm ready. So I close my eyes. Now he's initially supposed to hit you across the forehead and let it drip in your eyes, but this guy, with his great aim, shoots me dead in the eyes. <laughs> and to make it worse, he shot with the direction of the rim, so it hit my eyes with more force than it was supposed to. So finally I opened, it's dripping in my eyes. He, had, he asked me, how many fingers you got up? I put up the fingers. I tell him how many fingers he has. I take three steps and this is when the surprise hits. It wasn't like bees, like Jared said. It wasn't like uh, them stinging you in the eyes, like Ray said. It felt like somebody had took a flamethrower, was at point blank range and shot it in my face at full Lent, uh, full strength. And then for good measure, douse Tabasco sauce in my eyes. <laughs> so at that point, I fall to the ground crying for my mama. I'm like a three-year-old all over again. Crying for my mama and I eventually called a training timeout. Now in the Navy, when you call a training timeout, that means we need to stop whatever evolution we're doing because conditions are not safe for anybody. So the master at arms comes over and he says, if you do this, you're gonna have to still do it later on. You're just delaying it inevitable. I said, I don't give a fuck, man. This burns, get my mama, I want out of this. My mama can't get this in the middle of the Raven Gulf. How she gonna get that? But that's how you know it's bad when a man calls for his mama, it's bad. So finally, the red man comes over. Now the red man is the guy after you complete the course, he's the one you got to put all the skills you learn together to, to do him. He come over and gave me some words of encouragement. When I say words of encouragement, this is where the term cuss like a sailor comes in. Cause he encouraged me by saying, get the fuck up and stop being a bitch. So I weathered through it. And by the time I get to him, he did all but just give up so I can expedite the process, get through. So I run from the flight deck into the hangar bay. My friend Belk gets it. Belk used to be a guy who used to run the streets in the Bay Area, California. So what I'm doing, he said, hey, homie, I ain't gonna lie, man, I've been shot before, it ain't even as bad as that. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, you mean to telling me t a gunshot wound is less uh, painful than that? Even my friend Johnson, she went and did it the day with me. She did it like five people behind me, she said that shit was worse than childbirth. <laughs> I was like, this is terrible, why is the Navy institutionalizing this? 
So the debriefing, we're having the debriefing. The master at arms said, do you understand why? And I'm vocal. I said, hell no, I don't understand why we did that. What was the point? He said, well, you got to understand. You have that on your person. You got to know what the uh, what it's like to get hit with that in case the ships get taken over. I said, that is the stupidest fucking logic I've ever heard in my life. He said, why would you say that? I said, because we also carry 9mm pistols and M4 assault rifles. Are you going to shoot us with those? I mean, we carry them. I mean, that's your logic you're giving us, right? And he sat there looking dumbfounded because he knew that it was some stupid fucking logic. Now, the people who thought that this was going to be funny, they actually told me later on, and said, bro, we stopped recording and we turned away. They said, because your, your reaction was just pathetic. That was sad. That wasn't even, that was terrible. But that didn't stop them from clowning me about it. For the rest of the deployment, like about three months when we got back, everybody, no matter what party we was at, somebody would either scream out, OC, OC, and then I'd be like, man, fuck you. <laughs> or I'd just be, be randomly talking about it, Brad's mom said, oh, do you remember when McCarvey got OC sprayed? And they would mimic me falling to the ground. <laughs> One person who didn't let it go is my friend Luce. Me and Luce was in the same um, armed guard duty section. And he worked in the armory. So when I had to go down there to get my guns, I had to get it from him. And I also had to get the OC spray and flexi cuffs that we needed for standing armed guard, armed guard duty. He would always hand it to me every time I got armed up and say, man, you sure you're gonna be all right with that thing? <laughs> and I would always tell him, how about you take this bottle and shove it up your ass? <laughs> Except for one day, it was a guy getting armed up right in front of me. And he was getting, he was like, Luce was handing him his OC canister. And he fumbled it and it dropped to the ground. Now in my eyes, I'm seeing, it's real time, but I'm seeing it go in slow motion. My eyes get wide. I, you would have thought it was a frag grenade the way I dove for cover. <laughs> I dove for cover, had my hand on my M9, and I expected to hear a click and a hiss. I knew if I heard a hiss, it exploded, it's going everywhere. So I had my hand on my, uh, my 9mm pistol and the other hand over my face just like that. When I heard a click but nothing, I slowly got up, I looked up, and Luce and the guy were just looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> And that is when I realized that that OC had scarred me for life. Thank y'all very much. That was Pete McCorvey. Pete McCorvey has traveled around the world as both a comedian and as a US Navy sailor. He has met many people and experienced many things that have shaped and challenged his outlook on the world we live in. In his spare time, Pete enjoys reading, writing, podcasting, and discovering new and historical locales in his immediate area. The Story Collider is so grateful to Colleen and Pete for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Sam Lyons and Gabe Montesanti and Kent Wimple and Juan Carlos Martinez Jr., respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, comedian Gastor Almonte will be back with hilarious stories about failed experiments. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.